Hello. Before we get started with the show, I wanted to talk to you about uh, something that's near and dear to my heart, and that is sleep. I travel a great deal. I travel all around the world. I just got back from Kiev, crossing the Moldovan border. And the thing I always look forward to is getting back to my uh, king-size bed with my MyPillow mattress topper installed on the top. Now, I like a firm mattress because uh, I have back problems from uh, a long time ago uh, playing sports in high school. I love my firm mattress with the MyPillow mattress topper on top. You get the firmness, but also it's like sleeping on a firm cloud. I really can't explain it, but it is the most comfortable sleep I have ever experienced in my life, and I can't wait to get back to it every time I travel. If you go to MyPillow right now with promo code CDM, you can get a 50% discount on the mattress toppers. Uh, Mike Lindell is giving out amazing discounts right now. Uh, get them while they last. Use promo code CDM at MyPillow.com and get the MyPillow mattress topper, the best sleep you will ever experience. Thank you very much. Now on to our guest. So as everybody knows, we have started the American Conversations, which began in 2014 here in the States. And because of the global pandemic, we're taking it to the global conversation with people who are part of the free, free freedom movement all over the world. And today we have Dr. Christopher Neal. Doctor, welcome. Thank you for doing the interview with us. No, thank you for having me, Christine, and it's a real pleasure to be here. Well, I, I just, you know, I'm reaching out because I love Australia. I expected you guys to revolt earlier than the Canadians. Um, but, you know, you're, you're going to the polls and people, people it's interesting to me with the, the federal elections happening in different countries, how many people who haven't been involved in politics now are joining into the blood sport of politics, uh, basically to raise the voice and wanting to throw the incumbents out. Uh, tell us about yourself, because you're a cardiologist, you've been a professor, uh, and now you are you know, standing up for medical freedom and all kinds of freedom in Australia, and now you're a political candidate. Uh, thanks, yes. Uh, so I'm in my mid-40s, um, married with eight children um, in, in, in sort of country Victoria, which is um, not far from Melbourne um, in the Macedon Ranges. Uh, I've, I grew up in Melbourne and have had brief stints overseas working as well. Um, but, um, yeah, so I, I'm a mid, I, what we, what I'd call a mid-career cardiologist, um, and academic cardiologist. I've, uh, worked in our public health system a lot, uh, particularly with a focus in chronic disease and optimizing, um, health outcomes for people with chronic heart failure, which is something I'm really passionate about. Um, and that involves all sorts of cardiac diseases. Um, I got my PhD um, through, uh, you know, 2012. Um, I've published over 60 manuscripts working with others, and I've helped other people get their PhDs, uh, supervising them through the university system here. Um, all of that is very satisfying, um, but when it came to the pandemic, um, I found things less satisfying uh, because I, I wasn't in agreement with, with policy and the way that was massively impacting uh, my patients and the community here in Victoria. So what was your epiphany moment when you realized that something was amiss here? Uh, my personal moment was um, really just glancing up at a television. I don't watch a lot of television, but in my workplace, they've got morning television and so forth running. 
glancing up, seeing for the first or second or third time uh, footage from Wuhan, China, and uh, realising that although this was far off, uh, that it was, in a sense, being um, presented in a way to promote fear. And I really felt that uh, this was... This was um, Something that I, I felt like was being rammed down my throat, and uh, that it was it was by design or somehow um, somehow being pushed, and so I hoped that it wouldn't come to our shores, um, but it did, and um, my, my 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 sort of assessment of the way our government was handling that um, was immediately there was inappropriate, and enough data was available already to refute the claim of our Prime Minister Scott Morrison on the 20th of March 2020 that this was a once in a 100 year event akin to the Spanish flu. Now enough data was already available for me to know that that was not correct and it was irresponsible use of fear uh, as a tactic uh, and I was very skeptical. Just uh, so everyone can uh, be sure, um, the Spanish flu if if uh, something of that um of that uh, uh lethality were to come around the world in the in this time we would need to see 219 million deaths and as it is where we're a little over 6 million estimated uh, from the covid pandemic you know, at one point in time, uh, Scott Morrison, you know, really f focused. And I thought it, and this was early 2020. He was saying we need to get to the bottom of this because there were so many people that were saying that this could happen again. Uh, mm. with the next pandemic. And then he started to question, you know, exactly what was going on inside Wuhan. The Chinese needed to be more transparent. And then, of course, the Chinese came back and blew back at uh, Scott Morrison and he backed down. But the one thing that caught my attention is that the world leaders are not coming together to get to the origin of this. When you had people and scientists and researchers and Fauci in our uh, country saying, you know, this is going to happen again. And I kept on thinking, well, if it's not the wet markets, if nobody wants to shut down the wet markets worldwide. If it's not the lab, then we need to find out what the origin was. Did you find uh, doctors and scientists and, and medical researchers in your arena questioning, you know, what is going on here? Because I know Gabby had Gabby and Gates have a have a you know the Gates Foundation has a big influence in Australia. Yeah, I, I don't think there was any appetite to question uh, the origins of the virus. Um, personally, I'm I'm careful and um, skeptical of, of whatever theory because it's it remains a theory until we can really get to answers. Um, mm. So I'm I'm not. Um, I, I would just be honest and say I don't know the origin, um, but I did see uh, I, I did see various papers emerge on the on the internet um, pre-publication papers, and one in particular actually, which suggested that there was an insert of HIV, which is probably something your audience is quite aware of, uh, into the into the uh, protein structure of the uh, of the virus uh, or the spike protein in particular. And uh, and then that were the the reaction to that paper, which came out of Indian uh, an Indian center, was very um, immediately hypercritical, and that had to be taken down from the preprint server. Um, and whenever I see that, I realise that can't be called science. Science 
the, me- the scientific method, by definition, has to have that characteristic of being open-minded and curious, but also sceptical of every other point of view except that which the data and the evidence um, leads the, uh, the investigators um, to form. So if you immediately say something's wrong and terrible to say without um, allowing uh, other data to be brought to the table and a consensus to be formed, it's simply not an activity which I associate with science. So I knew, I knew that I needed to be open-minded to, um, to the origin so to speak. So what happened to you? I mean, did you speak out? I mean, you're obviously out there now because you're running for, you know, for political office. What happened to you professionally when you decided to speak up? Well, um, what, I, what I tried to do, if I could go forward uh, in time, um, first of all, I, I, didn't, um, I didn't accept the uh, vaccination. Um, now, this is early 2021, of course. And um, I'd been keenly interested and in, in collecting all the information that I could. In fact, I wrote myself a four-page letter just to myself as to my reasons. But part of those reasons were ethical and political. Um, so, for instance, um, my, in my ethics, um, the reason for me to take any product that used um, aborted stem cell lines in the, in the production or development of that product, uh, that would have to be a very strong reason to justify me uh, using that. And um, I didn't find the, the, the data uh, supported that this was a, a very effective, um, very effective uh, vaccine. So that was one thing I weighed up. And the other thing I weighed up was the way in which it was clearly, uh, there was clearly a co- coercive feel to what was being done in my country. And, uh, I viewed that as a political self-harm for me and my family to engage in that without fighting and uh, really bringing the the fight to the key issue of freedom in Australia. So I I took that that stand uh, initially early, but there was no pressure until October 2021 where the state mandates were um, came out in Victoria. And the way I see it, our federal government correctly said that they had no power to mandate but because they had such a close working relationship with the um with the state governments they devolved that responsibility to the state governments i I believe in in agreement although as some of your listeners may know the forum uh, of those discussions has been kept confidential and even freedom freedom of information has been denied Uh, and both sides of our uh two-party system agreed to keep that confidential and pass new legislation to do so, which uh, is slightly suspicious. But when I say the responsibility or the, the um, responsibility to um, mandate on the state level was, I guess, sent back to the state governments, they generally used uh, occupational health and safety laws and um, the idea that uh, tra- the, the, the risk of an unvaccinated employee transmitting an infection to a patient in the healthcare context or even outside the healthcare context to another member of society demanded the mandates. Um, So they were making an argument based on transmissibility. They weren't making the argument uh, based on one's own personal risk or the dignity to 
to accept that risk or to mitigate that risk based on one's own decision with regard to the vaccine. They weren't focusing us on our personal risk, but on the risk uh, to members of the community. And that's interesting because there was no um, claim made by the manufacturers that transmissibility would be reduced by the vaccine. And to this day, that's the case. And in fact, the data says that the um, that you're you're no more uh, you know you're no more likely to pass it on if you are unvaccinated uh, compared to if you're vaccinated. And well, some data that's that's more. true. Mm. That's true, Chris. I mean, we now know yeah. from the U.S. Mm. Companies uh, early on when when the rollout started in the United States, it was late December 2020. Some clinical trials had happened earlier that year, but uh, um, yeah, 2020. And then in 2021 is like the onslaught of the early rollout. And you know, by May or June, even in the United States, Fauci's people around him were talking about you know it would decrease the transmissibility. And then later by August, Gates, Bill Gates and Fauci said we need to work better on the vaccinations because the breakthrough cases showed up in the United States, you know, full blown after people had received the early rollout shots in early 2021. So the, transmissibility, they, so the question yeah. is, why is everybody taking this? If you, if, you know, then they'll say the, 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 uh, Benefits outweigh the risk. Well, you know, vaccinations traditionally are to prevent the transmissibility or prevent you from getting it. And that hasn't played out exactly how the traditional vaccinations roll up. I, I fully agree. I think the the claim with regard to these vaccinations is that they would reduce uh, the severity of an infection. That is the that is a key claim that's been made. Um, mm -hmm. Although it can't be made as conclusively as it should be because uh, we're all, all, of, all of this has been based on preliminary data, which is another subject entirely, not, the, not full uh, mm -hmm. availability of data for full registration of the products. But the, poli the political and social argument has been based on the social ill of passing it to someone, someone else. Uh, but how, however, that has no mechanistic basis. So this was... This was really the, the way in which our mandates uh, were forced on workers. And that really, really pushed up our vaccination rates. Uh, but I, I, I don't think there's any convincing evidence that that has really benefited the community personally. What I hear from colleagues is anecdotal uh, and, and in fact, speculative. Uh, it's probably helped, all this sort of stuff. Not the kind of level of evidence that I, would, I do demand. Um, especially when we have been forced to relinquish bodily autonomy, essentially, to put bread on the table. That's an unacceptable political outcome. That's the political self-harm that I was talking about and which I refuse to do and, and which has galvanised me and many others to stand up and fight in whatever way we can. In my case, that's standing up for election uh, in this, in this uh, 45th election in Australia. So let me ask you about um, the adverse effects. How transparent was your government about the adverse effects for, uh, and let's just start with the, we don't have uh, AstraZeneca distributed here in the United States the way it is in Australia. Uh, at this, but we did have clinical trials for AstraZeneca here. For the US pharmaceutical companies, 
were the Pfizer, Moderna, uh, Janssen, J and J shots? Were they were the adverse effects known to people in Australia? Um, interesting. So I think there was an early signal um, that was available in January, uh, particularly out of Europe and the United States, January and February. Um, and we, we were, uh, you know, we commenced our rollout more in in um, February. Um, mm. I found that a lot of clinicians were not engaged in looking at those real-time data regarding adverse events as they were reported. Um, now, moving back to how our federal government uh, pushed this through, uh, they pushed it through as an investigational product. That's very important. Um, mm. That gets to the ethics of... of uh, participation in, in any investigation or in experimentation by consent only. But um, they, uh, the TGA, which is our Therapeutic Goods Administration, stated clearly on their website, and by the way, they're a department of the, they're a sub-department of the health department federally. They suggested that there was no long-term safety data available, safety or efficacy data available for the products. Although we had um, Fauci, we had Fauci yeah. here in the United States continuously say he's like a piece of evidence every time he opens mm. up his mouth, he would continuously yeah. say they're safe and effective when in fact they're yeah. not safe and effective for everyone on the planet. That's right, and uh, and and that to me had the ring of a kind of a trademark phrase rather than one which was um, robustly based on evidence. Mm -hmm. And again, we've got to be very skeptical. That's scientific thinking is not to not to have a group of voices which will accept uncritically but to hold all, uh, all all those claims to scrutiny so we we had a kind of a double speak in from the federal government level saying that the uh, they were safe and effective but at the same time you go on their website and it says there's no long-term safety or efficacy data mm -hmm. which is very troubling um, now, in terms of the signals which are available in January, this was uh, these the blood clots, especially with AstraZeneca, um, and in in particular the cerebral venous thrombosis. I don't know if you remember yes. that particular type, uh, mm -hmm. and that should be very rare. So the signal was I was perhaps easiest to pick up early, um, and our government uh, looked at that data and they came up with a very, very low estimate um, of frequency. I think it was three in a million or something, um, which may be, let's just give it the benefit of the doubt, that may be acceptable if that's the only equivalently severe uh, side effect and or if the disease is very, you know, very dangerous and, and the prevention in the vaccine is very effective that may be acceptable to have a three in a million rate. But what I found interesting is that um, at one time in the AstraZeneca rollout, which was the first half of last year mainly, um, a friend in a hospital had seen, in a very short time, had seen 13 cases of cerebral venous uh, thrombosis in one of our major capital cities in one hospital. And... Uh, and I didn't follow up to see because he would have probably seen more. Now that immediately tells you that um, that uh, the, the rate is greater than what they were saying. And and again, 
as a medical scientist, one has to review the data. So if you make a claim and yet more data comes in, you have to keep looking at that. And what I found with our government is they stayed with the February, March sort of estimates of frequency and never adjusted them, even though my uh, perception was that, you know, these were these were more frequent than, than those initial rates. Plus, very importantly, um, it, it wasn't the only type of thrombosis that one, one was, you know, people were getting. Um, but it was the one they were focusing on, this, this one. So I felt that it was a kind of misdirection, intentional or not, um, because there, I had patients uh, succumb to various um, thromb uh, thromboses. Um, and not only with the AstraZeneca, which is another interesting facet where all of the, um, the AstraZeneca was perhaps scapegoated, um, as it were, that it was in that early period responsible for all of the adverse events uh, effects, not so much Pfizer. Pfizer was seen as very desirable early on uh, when the data about AstraZeneca was coming through. Well, we have, I don't know if you know about this, but in, in America, we actually have a FOIA case going on now, and the Pfizer is dumping uh, hundreds of thousands of documents into the court. They didn't want to do it. They didn't want to release them, and these are the documents that they gave to the Federal Drug Administration and uh, for the rollout. And then um, the, the FOIA, the judge granted the FOIA. They said that they, they argued that they did not want to dump them into the public domain until 2000, I think it's 76. And uh, the judge yep. said, no, sorry, you know, you're going to dump them now. Then, then they did the first month was February this year. And then they're going to do it every month until I think it's August, September in the fall here. And by March, Pfizer attorneys went back to the court and said, this is too burdensome. And the judge basically said, you're going to continue to dump these. And as they have been dumping them, Every month, we've all gone through them, and they have, uh, I think it's over 1,200 different adverse effects for the Pfizer shots, and uh, mm. a lot of them are with the blood clots and thrombosis. I mean, it's, I mean, it's, it's, the, and, and they still haven't, which is interesting here in the United States. The FDA still has not officially acknowledged the neurological and the vascular injuries for these vaccinations. Mm. Um, although we know from on our network, we know from interviewing vaccine injured since the beginning of 2021 that blood has been given to the NIH by those who have been vaccine injured uh, and have looked at them. They've collected some of the evidence. There's been meetings with vaccine injured and some government officials, but they have yet to you know acknowledge the vascular. They have acknowledged the cardio with Johnson & Johnson, that was in June of last yep. year. Um, but the vascular and the neuro neurological, they have not officially, you know, uh, turned the lights on, those issues. Yeah. And it's unfortunate because a lot of the, I don't know how the, the medical system works in Australia, but for a lot of these people who are vaccine injured, they go to their GPs, they go to their ERs, the doctors don't know how to uh, handle some of these uh, issues and they're looking for alternative medicine. To get better, but I've been interviewing these people for over a year, and a lot of them are not getting better. I mean, what what showed up in your in your uh, office, and people were your patients who had been vaxxed? Um, well, I mean, to be fair, many of them had no uh, no problems, uh, which is great. Um, 
and I then started to see the pericarditis very early. And I passed because I was in touch with international people. I was more aware of it early. Um, saw some myocarditis, and at some point we had a meeting um, uh, where where um, this was sort of discussed within within the cardiology uh, community. Um, what I found interesting is that is that the specialists didn't necessarily know much about these products other than that, that they were vaccines. And uh, and I would add a lot of uh, GPs didn't really know the intricate um, uh, mechanistic um, kind of uh, the the, no the novelty of how these how these vaccines were working. So mRNA technology. Um, the chimpanzee adenovirus vector for the AstraZeneca, mm -hmm. and and so there, I, I think there had been um, kind of a, a, a relaxed attitude to to and the new product that they wouldn't have rolled it out if it wasn't safe. But I, I you know, so I was um, I remember asking when when we were first discussing uh, the issue of myocarditis. Uh, and pericarditis, why it was happening and what mechanism it might be. And that's sort of going back to first principles. I knew, of course, no one could answer that at that early stage. But um, a lot of people didn't really know that we were talking about a lipid nanoparticle um, vector deliver, uh, delivery system and, um, and mRNA, which would actually get out into the whole of the body, not just the deltoid muscle, in the arm. I've in fact had an immunologist try to convince me that it was just going to stay in the arm. And um and I think that's really important. The the So do you do I don't you think, think yeah. pardon me for interrupting, mm. but do you, th you think doctors were hoodwinked? I think by you, you could use that term, um, for sure. For a lot of reasons. For instance, I, I know some colleagues were just so burnt and sick of the whole pandemic that they they literally wouldn't be reading about that information um they'd be they're reading about their specialist interest information almost in protest of being bombarded by uh, covid data all the time uh, with with that element of fear from the media and just hoping it would go away and of course gravitating to the um to the vaccine as the only way to get it to go away but not asking really critical questions. I, on the other hand, was, was certainly focused more on this issue than my specialty of cardiology in my sort of um, self-education time. So um, what happened to you? What happened to yeah. you? I mean, professionally, did, did, they, did they come after you? Well, so, yeah, back to, um, back to October last year, um, I had to um, not come into my workplace and... Through to December, I was um, supporting a, a kind of a medical and nursing um, union represent representation strategy, again, working on the oc occupational health and safety laws to try and prove them non-compliant. Um, mm. I, I worked on that for, for several months, but in the end, just before Christmas, I was terminated um, by my hospital. Um, I, didn't, uh, I didn't feel they, they were in a place to argue... Um, in terms of, I, I honestly, honestly don't believe that the people, you know, my colleagues and, and um, executive staff of the hospital 
really had the capacity to to argue on facts and logic. I really do not believe that. Um, they were simply uh, carrying out a program uh, of those in authority. So we were really experiencing authoritarianism um, and arbitrary kind of kind of rule uh, and imposition on ourselves. So that that would that would have involved hundreds of, of people stepping down or being um, fired from just my hospital alone, and thousands in multiple industries all around Victoria and Australia. Um, so then that, that's what happened to me. Um, I didn't, I, I haven't uh, immediately followed this up with any court action um, because it was clear to me that I had to focus on the election, which is tomorrow. So I um, mm -hmm. really put, put my energy into a particular party, which is pretty new and pretty amazing. It's called the Australian Federation Party. And... Um, it has come from nowhere with a lot of grassroots support, not a lot of financial support, uh, and we're just doing our best. We've got um, 80 candidates uh, across Australia, which is pretty amazing having, considering that we've only really had a lead-up of several months and we've had some, um, some grief from the Electoral Commission in terms of getting registration as a party and various other obstacles to overcome. So I'm, I'm very pleased to be working with the Australian Federation Party, but there are other parties that have that um, that sort of core value of freedom and standing up right now, uh, recognising how important it is that we make our voice, voice heard and try to um, claw back to a, a free and democratic society here. How is your election going? Yeah, I, I think there's... Um, it's the big question. Um, in a way, this is about the, the the main determinant is about what's already been been uh, happening in Victoria. Let me just focus on Victoria. So we've got um, 6.7 million people. We've got 4.3 million registered voters. So working with that denominator, uh, the question is how many people are already activated. Uh, so that whatever their previous political paradigm, they're now seeing freedom as the key issue. In other words, they're seeing this as a referendum on freedom and not um, and, and everything else being secondary. And I estimate that that's probably one million voters. And if, that, if I'm correct, and, and I have many reasons for, for, uh, for coming to that kind of estimate, and it's just an estimate, it could be more, could be less, if I'm correct, that's going to completely shake up things. And that's because we don't have a two-party uh, preferred sort of voting mechanism at the polls. We have a preferential voting system, mm -hmm. which, um, which ca uh, rather than splitting up the votes of, of uh, multiple minor parties or independents who are freedom-friendly, it actually has the effect of combining them if people vote correctly. And um, now we've had a massive campaign in educating the voter, uh, educating the freedom-minded voter, I should say, of how to put the major parties last and to combine all of the freedom-friendly options at the top of the ballot paper. That's been, I think, very effective. Um, 
And I think that um, if people follow that strategy, we could really shake up things here in Victoria and certainly in other places in Australia. Everyone in uh, Australia is aware of how tight this race is. Our two major party options, which are the Liberal and Labor parties, are combined uh, showing a record low in, uh, in approval. We're talking 65% between them. That's never happened in Australian politics. And those polls, by the way, often overestimate the support for these parties. So we you could have, be seeing... Mm. Don't you have mandatory voting in Australia? Yeah, we do. Mm-hmm. We do. Mm-hmm. Um, so so if, pe- yeah. if, if you, you're, they're going to vote uh, at the same time, people who probably, like yourself, who w- who were not you know, politically engaged enough to run. And with this type of climate, I, I, I wonder if, if there's, if there, if, if the traditional parties, if the labor parties, if, if they're, if they're, are the incumbents running scared? Do they I, think I, I believe, there's a problem? Look, I think that <clears throat> there's some evidence, some evidence that they're running scared, uh, but there's other evidence that they're in denial which, as we all know, is a very powerful thing. Um, Mm. And it's very hard to imagine you could be defeated by a group that you you absolutely despise. Um, (laughs) So I think denial denial is at play. Um, As I was saying, the the approval for the two major options is very low. And uh, what the media is presenting to us is that other, you know, that they're grouping um, the other options as just other. Um, you know, with some uh, some other details there. But I think if, if you look at all of those who intend not to vote for uh, the major uh, the major options, um, depending on the on the poll, you're looking at up to 38% who are intending not to vote Liberal or Labor. So this could be absolutely spectacular. Everyone's predicting a hung parliament, which in our system would mean um, that the two major parties have to negotiate with what we call crossbenchers from mm-hmm. drawn from independents or minor parties and negotiate and horse trade their way to forming a government, which is, which is not necessarily bad. It certainly could curtail some of the extremes we've had. But the other thing to put out there is, is in our system, if, if the parliament is so hung, as it were, um, that they can't actually form government in the lower house with with a majority one or another, um, then at some stage we could have what's called a double dissolution election, which mm-hmm. where we just press replay and do it all again. And I think that if that were the case, um, given that our movement is drawn from people who have just become politically engaged and are novices, um, that having had this practice run, I think we would be formidable on a second time run if we get that. Um, so I think this is, it's very unpredictable here in Australia, but I think that it, it will be dangerous to underestimate the freedom movement and the freedom parties, freedom candidates and the freedom voters. I think it's terrific. I think it's terrific. We have our election, <clears throat> pardon me, in, um, in November, but it's good to see, it's good to see what happened in Canada with the truckers. It's mm. good to see the people who shut up in Canberra and, uh, shortly thereafter in uh, in Australia. And I think that, you know, the, your elections there, it's, it's going to 
it's going to throw a stone through a window one way or the other. Yep. That's yep. that's the most important thing. It's going to break. It's going to break some glass. And that's that's what's important. Chris, good luck to you on your campaign. Please keep in touch, uh, you know, and, and because I think this is uh, very exciting what's happening in Australia and people that are waking up. I, I, I really always thought that it would be the Australians first. Um, <laughs> I was surprised that it was the Canadians. I was waiting for, you know, the Americans to get their act together. But um, there have been some steps now that the Canadians and the Australians, and you guys are going to the polls before we do. We just started our primaries, our real getting into the primary season, you know, this month. But it's uh, it's good to see new new faces and um, political activists engaging and, and stepping up. It really is. Good luck to you, and please Brilliant. keep in touch. Thank you very much. Cheers. Cheers.